Well, good evening, everyone. It's very good to be with you. Uh, can I, on your behalf, thank the band for leading us in that time of worship? And as Neville said, we're continuing our series on the book of Colossians. Uh, tonight, we consider the second half of chapter 1, verses 15 through 29. And there is a recurring theme in chapter 1, uh, a concept that keeps cropping up. Paul keeps mentioning the idea of hope. And so our study tonight will have that pastoral focus. Hope is a much misunderstood term. I'm old enough to remember the moment when Tony Blair was elected as Prime Minister in 1997. And the theme music chosen uh, to accompany him as he walked up Downing Street was a pop song performed by a Northern Irish group called D. Ream. And the song was called Things Can Only Get Better. Well, any politician walking up Downing Street these days would have to ask D. Ream to record a song entitled Things May Quite Possibly Get a Whole Lot Worse. We so often confuse hope with what we might call a flimsy bit of positive thinking, a moment of optimism. But that sort of false hope invariably gets crushed by the weight of real life. In Christian thought, hope is a very different thing. It's a kind of certainty. Someone wants to find it like this. Christian hope is a certainty based on the logic of the love of God. It argues that if God loved us while we were his enemies, and Christ died for us while we were still his enemies, if then we make our peace with God through Jesus Christ, we may be utterly certain and unshakably confident, confident in the logic of the consistency of the love of God. Having pardoned us for Christ's sake when we were sinners, we can be equally confident that he will not leave us until he has brought us to humanity's true destiny of glory. When the members of the church at Colossae first got saved, they felt that hope. They felt entirely secure in their new faith. They could rest on it, feel a real sense of assurance that Christ would bring them home to glory. But then some false teachers had visited the church and had unsettled the believers. All that stuff about Christ is all very well, they said, but there's much more for you to do. More than faith in Christ, asked the bewildered Colossians. Oh yes, replied the false teachers. That's just kindergarten stuff. You need to go to big school now. For starters, you have to gain special knowledge about the angelic power structures if you'd have any chance of getting through to God. And you need to keep some new rules if you ever want to become holy. And then there are mystical experiences. Have you not had any ecstatic experiences? Colossian believers shook their heads regretfully. Well, we need to get you onto that scheme immediately if you're ever to make progress in the Christian life, said the false teachers. And before long, these poor saints in Colossae had become a bit anxious and discouraged. What if Christ wasn't enough? How could they feel any sense of assurance about their future? So in this first chapter, the Apostle Paul sets about rebuilding genuine hope into the hearts of the believers in Colossae. As I said a minute ago tonight, we consider verses 15 to 29 of chapter 1. I'd like to thank Ollie Neal for his graphic design work on my slides. <clears throat> he had nothing to do with it, by the way. But you'll see from the screen that our passage fairly obviously divides into three paragraphs. I suggest that the first paragraph, verses 15 to 20, explains why Christ is the foundation of hope. Now, that's not immediately obvious from the text, so don't worry about the title. 
The next two paragraphs then each discuss a specific type of hope. Paragraph 2, that's verses 21 to 23, deals with the hope of being free from accusation. The freedom from crushing guilt, if you like. And then the third paragraph, verses 24 to 29, explains the hope of becoming mature. So let's get underway by reading the first paragraph together. You will very quickly spot that it divides into two blocks. Verses 15 to 17 talk about the relationship between Christ and creation. And then 18 to 20 talk about the relationship between Christ and the church. So let's read the word of God, Colossians chapter 1, starting at verse 15. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church, He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Now, these magnificent words uh, may have been part of a very early creed or hymn, The Bible says that all creation, all of it, has been imagined, designed, and produced by a personal creator. God is not part of creation. He's in a different category from creation. I mean, imagine two containers. In one container you find God, in the other container you find everything else, from the archangel Michael to the humble earthworm. Now that's one of those black and white statements that cannot be fudged. Either we live in a universe in which everything personal eventually reduces to the impersonal, or we live in a universe in which everything impersonal can be traced back to a personal creator. And Paul is utterly unambiguous. Everything in this universe, he says, can be traced back to an idea in the mind of God. You are God's idea. Mind is more basic than matter. In fact, Paul is more specific than that. He doesn't simply say that we began as an idea in God. He says that in Christ, all things were created. So he's introducing us to the eternal son, the second person of the Trinity. This entire universe came from the personal, creative mind of Christ. He imagined it, designed it, engineered it, and sustains it. Not just the stuff we can see, like oceans and galaxies, but the unseen things like the mathematics and the laws of physics. So those intricate, elegant symmetries expressed by the equations of Paul Dirac or Schrodinger came out of Christ's mind. And so did the complex world of unseen spiritual intelligences. Paul calls them thrones and powers and authorities. If you've got the text in front of you, well, you do actually, uh, verse 16, look at those little prepositions. That they're packed with meaning. All of created reality isn't just created in Christ and through him, but for him. When you look up at the night sky, watch the stars sail through space, you might sigh and ask aloud, where's it all going? You'd be irritated with me if I appeared behind you. Well, you'd probably be very frightened if I appeared behind you on a dark night. But if I tried to answer your question by talking about velocity, 
and speed. Because your question is much deeper than that, isn't it? You're asking about the purpose and the significance of the universe and your place within it. And the Bible says that Christ created this universe for a purpose. He had an intention when he made it. So it is for him. The next verse says that in him all things hold together. In other words, it's only within the purposes of Christ that all the complex diversity in creation makes sense. It is he who gives the thing coherence. Verse 17 tells us that Christ is before all things. Imagine a young wife and mother preparing tea for her husband and son. She's expecting to see the family car appear in the driveway. But the minutes tick by. She doesn't yet know that a terrible road accident has occurred, killing both husband and son. She is behind that event. In due time, a police car will appear in the driveway. But for now, she is behind the event. And that's the way we all experience life. We are behind events. We react to things when they happen. But Christ, as Lord of space and time, is before all things. So he's never surprised or taken off guard. Nothing happens in this universe unless he allows it to happen. Paul begins this magnificent description of Christ by saying that he is the Son, the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Now, it will have been obvious to you, given what we've just been examining in verses 16 and 17, that when Paul describes Christ as the firstborn, he cannot mean that Christ himself is a creature. And yet, a heresy arose in the 5th century uh, which taught exactly that. It was called Arianism. And its followers taught that Jesus Christ was a creature. He was in the same category as the archangel Michael and the earthworm. In our day, Arian heresy is taught by Jehovah Witnesses. And they are very fond of ripping that clause from verse 15 out of context and using it as an argument that Christ is himself a creature. Now, there are lots of good arguments that show why this verse cannot be used to support Arianism. I'm just going to run through a couple of them. First, there was a perfectly good word in usage in Paul's days in the Greek that meant first created. But Paul didn't use it. He used the term firstborn here as, as he does elsewhere. Secondly, you will see if you, if you read through the text later on that Christ is described as firstborn from the dead. In Romans 8, he's described as firstborn among those who were called according to the purposes of God. So the title firstborn is a title of preeminence. God gave that title to David in the Old Testament, even though he was actually lastborn in a physical sense. So it's a bit like the term heir in Hebrews 1. The term firstborn is a title of preeminence. So the eternal son of God is not a creature. God has always existed and will always exist as a triunity of persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And on that first Christmas, when Christ entered into his own universe, the eternal Son was adding humanity to himself. But his divine nature was unchanged. As Paul says in verse 19, the fullness of God dwelled within the body of Jesus. Now at this point, we might justifiably call for a halt. Hold on a minute, we might say. These truths about Christ as creator are wonderful. But I can't quite see how they would have helped the Colossians regain their hope and confidence. Well, it seems to me that the apostle is setting up a parallel. 
In verses 15 to 17, he described Christ's work in creation. And now, in verses 18 to 20, he will talk about Christ's work in redemption. So we're going to consider those verses, and then we'll think about why this parallel thing might be important. To appreciate the immensity of Christ's work as Redeemer, we need to grasp just how awful a mess sin has made of creation. Paul's already given us insight into the thrones and powers and authorities in the unseen world. And a terrible revolt took place amongst these vast spiritual intelligences. At the very highest levels of the created universe, a rebellion against the person of God occurred. A great divorce between the creator and his creation. Now, if power could have solved the problem, then of course, there would have been no contest. God could simply have deleted his creation and started again. All those spiritual intelligence were just creatures, after all. But this divorce could never be fixed through the use of power. Christ's great task was to reconcile creation with his creator, a task so difficult that it seems almost impossible. Why? Because sin makes us run away from God. Our guilt generates this deep feeling that God is against us. So Christ must convince us that God is for us. And then he must provide a way for the moral debt we have incurred to be paid. Only then could there ever be peace between God and man. And as verse 20 teaches us, Christ reconciled all things by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Now, we shouldn't imagine that that phrase, reconcile all things, necessarily means that everyone is going to get converted. But that all things, be they saints or rebels, shall be brought to own the justice, the holiness, and the love of the Creator. But now comes the amazing bit. Christ did so much more than reconcile creation and Creator in the sense of undoing the damage caused by sin. He creates this astonishing new thing, the thing called the church. When you and I became Christians, when we united with Christ in his death and resurrection, when we became members of the body of Christ, we are now already part of an entity that will outlast this temporary old world. We're now already embedded within Christ's new creation. So we can now put the two blocks of this section together and perhaps begin to see why I chose that strange title, Christ is the foundation for a believer's hope. Tell me, as a creature living on this little pale blue dot called Earth, how much do you contribute to the maintenance of physical reality? How much effort does it take for you to keep gravity going? To maintain the protective magnetic shield around the planet? How hard do you have to work to stop yourself from disappearing down some wormhole or other? That's a completely ridiculous question, you would retort. I rely on Christ to keep the universe going. The whole thing is his idea. He made it for a purpose. So I just take the life I've been given in this amazing world and live it in accordance with his purposes. Quite so. Tell me, as a member of the body of Christ, how hard do you have to work to keep it alive? How much effort does it take you to keep yourself within the body? That's another ridiculous question you would say. I'm not responsible for keeping the body of Christ alive. I have a role within the church, but I'm not responsible for its eternal destiny any more than I'm responsible for the trajectory of Jupiter. 
I've just been given this amazing life within an entity that will outlast Jupiter and all the other planets. It was Christ who embedded me within his new creation. Now, when you look at it like that, all the anxieties triggered by these false teachers start to drain away. Remember, they tried to sideline Christ to reduce him to just one component in their elaborate scheme of holiness. But that's to place Christ in the wrong category. We rely on Christ as Redeemer in the same way as we rely on Christ as Creator. It's only when we grasp the uniqueness, the enormity of Christ's person that we have a foundation for hope. Let's now turn to the second paragraph of this section and we'll read verses 21 to 23. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. If you continue in your faith, established and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. This is the gospel that you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven under which I, Paul, have become a servant. The first paragraph was full of lofty, slightly abstract concepts. But now Paul gets up close and personal. And you, he says. The great divorce between creation and creator didn't just happen in the upper echelons of the spiritual realm. Each one of us was alienated from God. Our evil behavior made us dislike God. We wanted nothing to do with him. Perhaps you're a non-Christian here tonight and you bristle slightly at the accusation that you dislike God. I don't dislike God, you say. I'm just completely indifferent to him. Consider for a moment how sad that level of alienation is. I remember someone once telling me a story about a brilliant classical musician. She was a hugely talented uh, violin player who really performed with some of the world's leading orchestras. Critics raved at the girl's ability to interpret and express the beauty uh, of the great composers. In an interview, she said she lived for music, but the girl was an atheist. And so in one interview, she laughed at the thought of God because she said she considered him to be a bore. But surely someone who has the mind to appreciate beauty must long to encounter the source of that beauty, to meet the one who created music, who opened up the possibility of composition and skillful performance. How could the source of her greatest passion be a bore? There's only one logical answer. Her alienation from God was a moral choice, not an aesthetic one. As the atheist philosopher Thomas Nagel once said, I don't want there to be a God. I don't want the universe to be like that. In our quieter moments, I suspect all of us would love to encounter the source of goodness and beauty, and in so doing, encounter life's purpose, value, and significance. But the moral problem seems insurmountable. I mean, even if we wanted to approach God, you can be sure that Satan, the great accuser, would be at hand to stop us in our tracks. Excuse me, you horrible little bit of dust. But what do you think you're doing? Your God is holy and just. You want him just to forgive you? To sweep your sin under the carpet like some doting grandfather? Forget it. There's absolutely no way you can get rid of your guilt. How helpless we are. But now comes the hope of the gospel. Because of Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, 
we can stand before God blameless, free from accusation. If Satan did think to turn up, list out all our horrible sins, we could nod cheerfully and say, you're absolutely right. It's quite legitimate for you to call God's wrath down on my head, but there's just one problem. I'm already dead. If you look up the records for my life, you'll notice that they record that I'm dead. When I got saved, I was united with Christ in his death and resurrection. So the law cannot get to me. Christ died in my place. He paid the moral debt that I incurred. So now I can stand in the presence of a holy God and know myself to be blameless and free from accusation. What a relief, you say. I just wish you had stopped at verse 22. Because all the anxiety started to flood back into my heart when I came across that conditional statement. If you continue in your faith and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. I really don't like that if statement. Sounds as if I have to work hard at this continuation of faith thing. I have to put a lot of effort to keep my hope from wobbling. Well, I didn't quote that sentence in verse 23 correctly, did I? There are four elements in that sentence. The first and the last are in the present tense, but the middle two, which I completely left out, are in the past tense. So the full sentence reads like this. If you continue in your faith, established and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel... Paul is saying that your faith is already established and firm. You are already like the tree in Psalm 1 that has its roots sunk deep into the ground so that it can stand against the wind and produce fruit. Your faith is already established. So the two clauses in the present tense, which bracket that, cannot be taken to mean effort. Paul is talking here about dependence. So continuing in a faith that is already established and firm means being content with it resting in, on the truth of the gospel. And not moving from the hope of the gospel means accepting its logic, being assured and confident in it, rather than being frightened by the bogeyman erected by false teachers. So we can enjoy the hope of the gospel when we rest in the truth of justification by faith and when we accept the assurance that flows from the logic of the gospel. No wonder Paul proclaimed this gospel to everyone he could. He says in verse 23, that it has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven. Now, that doesn't mean that every creature has heard it yet. Paul's going to spend chapter 4 of this epistle highlighting the importance of global mission. But the apostle has shouted it from the rooftops, if you like. He hasn't just revealed it to a select few. His proclamation is out in the open, made available to anyone willing to listen. Now, if we go back to the first slide, could we? Because I'm so proud of it. Uh, before we move to the final paragraph, just let me highlight a little structural point. You may have noticed that in this paragraph we are presented, okay, that was verse 22, to present you free from accusation. And we also get this explicit mention of a hope, the hope held out in the gospel, that's verse 23. Now, when we get to the third paragraph, we will also find that we are presented, and a different specific hope is mentioned. But as I say, the two presentations and two hopes are different. The paragraph talked to us that we've just talked about is about hope that emerges from being justified. But the one we're now going to look at will discuss the hope that comes from sanctification. So let's now read the final verses now, verses 24 through 29. Now I rejoice in what I am suffering for you, and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, which is the church. I have become its servant by the commission God gave me to present to you the word of God in its fullness, the mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations, but is now disclosed to the Lord's people. 
To them, God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. He is the one we proclaim, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. To this, I strenuously contend with all the energy Christ so powerfully worked in me. So in this second paragraph, the second paragraph, you remember we encountered this presentation on specific hope, and here we find the same thing. This time, verse 28, everyone is presented fully mature in Christ. And the hope this time isn't the hope of the gospel, it's the hope of glory. So we're thinking in this final paragraph of what theologians call sanctification, which is the journey towards Christian maturity. And that journey is never easy. And Paul knew that better than anyone the hardships and trials that that man endured for the cause of Christ are scarcely believable. He was hounded across the Roman Empire by the Jewish elite who wanted him dead. He was beaten, insulted, betrayed, falsely imprisoned, and eventually executed. He suffered shipwreck three times. And in this part of Colossians, the apostle describes his hardships in a really strange way. He says, I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, which is the church. Hmm. He cannot, of course, be talking about the suffering Christ endured on the cross as part of his great work of atonement. That work is finished, and it would be blasphemous to suggest that they were lacking in some way. Perhaps the best way to explain Paul's thought here is to remind you of his conversion story. In Acts chapter 9, Saul of Tarsus, uh, as he then was, is approaching the city of Damascus. He had been a violent persecutor of the church. But he's confronted by this vision of the risen Christ on the road to Damascus. And Jesus says to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Do you get the significance of that quote? When our Lord sees a member of the church suffer, he also suffers, because that's the nature of a body. When one member suffers, all the members suffer. So Christ's afflictions are not over in the sense that as history unfolds, our Lord still grieves when his people experience trial and hardship. In this paragraph, Paul explains that he's willing to suffer for the cause of the gospel because he has this inestimable privilege of explaining to the whole world a great secret, a part of God's plan that had been deliberately hidden until this point. It is the astonishing idea that Christ, through his Spirit, will take up residence within a Christian's personality. Paul has given us a lot of antidotes to anxiety and discouragement in this passage tonight, but he has kept the big reveal to the end. Remember, he's writing to believers who had been unnerved, made anxious by false teaching about the path to maturity and holiness. So let me close by addressing those of you who are discouraged. Perhaps you despair at your lack of progress in the Christian life. Or maybe the trials of life threaten to overwhelm you. You feel alone at times, like a solitary hill walker facing a tough climb. Well, Paul has already taught you that you're not responsible for getting home to glory on your own. Christ sustains his body with the same power and care that he uses to maintain the physical creation. He will fulfill his purpose. But anxiety and discouragement don't just drain away because you are in Christ. There is this other astonishing reality that Christ is in you. 
There was someone uh, stood in this pulpit not very long ago and he dismissed the idea of asking Jesus into your heart. He said it wasn't possible because Christ is up in heaven. Now, no one knows better than me the peril of making a throwaway comment, so I don't want to be harsh here, but it did cause some distress. So uh, forgive me if you think I'm making a mountain out of a molehill here, but on behalf of the elders in the church and the ministry committee, it's my duty to correct that unfortunate comment. Paul prays in Ephesians that Christ may dwell richly in our hearts through him, through faith. The Lord Jesus explicitly promised to enter into a believer's personality during his upper room ministry. In fact, it turns out all three persons of the Trinity enjoy table fellowship with us within the residency of our hearts. But the pastoral point is this. I wonder what state your mind is in right now. Perhaps it's a bit cold and dark. Not an entirely welcoming environment. And yet... That is where Christ chooses to dwell. He walks down the corridors of your mind, not shaking his head in disappointment, but shedding his warm and cheerful light. Christ in you, says Paul. And it is that glorious reality which provides the hope of glory. Paul can talk of the energy Christ so powerfully works in him because Christ is indwelling him. And it is such an intimate truth The Lord's quiet, reassuring presence can still the waves of anxiety. It warms the lonely heart. But slowly over the years, the gentle, relentless work of Christ in our lives leads us to maturity. And so we can open our eyes to the possibility that one day we shall be glorious creatures. In Christ's new creation, we won't be weak and useless. We will be sons and daughters of the Most High. That is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So we're done for tonight. Our three paragraphs taught us three things. Christ is the foundation of our hope. We rejoice in the hope of the gospel, the reality that we already stand free from accusation. And we rejoice in the hope of glory, the hope that one day we will be presented as fully mature sons and daughters of God. I'll hand back to Neville for a final hymn, and then I will close in prayer.